It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. Well, you know, uh, listeners to Bot Radio Network may not may not realize it, but we're pretty busy, 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 aren't we, Rich, on so many other things that are happening, and we've been out of town, haven't we? We have. We've been out of town for almost two weeks, and uh, two excellent conferences we attended in Florida, and we're glad to be back. Uh, well, i tell you what, those conferences didn't have anything to do with the fact they were in Florida. They were just really, really important conferences. One was the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. Tell us just a little bit about NRB, Rich. It started how many years ago? About 60 years ago or more. It started 75 years ago in 1944. And uh, my goodness, that was started at a time when religious broadcasting was being forced off the airwaves. And NRB came together. It came together in all-night prayer meetings with the heads of these ministry organizations. Can I make a correction there? It wasn't religious broadcasting forced off the air. It was biblical Christian broadcasting. It absolutely was. And uh, absolutely, and those who really wanted to preach the Bible and teach people about the foot of the cross, that sort of thing, those are the ones that were being maneuvered to be off the air. Well, ministries like Back to the Bible, like the Lutheran Hour, and others that were preaching the Bible and were being forced off the air. So they came together, all-night prayer meetings, and out of that came the National Religious Broadcasters. So together we could protect our access to the airwaves to preach the gospel. Yeah. Now this was my, this year was my 55th year to attend the NRB convention, and it really has grown, and now is the International Christian Media Convention, isn't it? Oh, they come from all over the world, yes, absolutely. To learn and to share and to fellowship, and it was wonderful. Rich, there was something that I really felt this year that I've been praying about a lot, and there was an amalgamation. There was there was a diversity among the people that were there, there were many people that were black, and there were many people that were Caucasian, there were many people that were Asian, and there is that element that is starting in NRB, and it's an answer to many people's prayers. Well, yes, everybody that is involved and engaged in the proclamation of the gospel, and it's not only broadcasting anymore, it's it's every form of electronic communications, whether it's broadcasting, radio, television, uh, the internet, mobile devices, uh, even film, because so much of that is electronic these days. But everybody is coming together to hone their skills, find out how we can more effectively present the gospel in this wonderful electronic media that's available to us. Now, among all of the other things that happen. Bot Radio Network sponsors a breakfast. This year it was on Thursday morning of that week for the leaders of NRB. And there were, how many? There were about 400, I think, weren't there? That's right. For our breakfast, there were um, oh, well over 4,000 for the whole convention. But the leadership breakfast that we hosted, we had about 400 leaders there. And I tell you, folks, we really pray about that and think about that carefully. And, uh, and we don't want to commit ourselves until we know the right person. And there were some awards given. We gave Dr. Alveda King, Martin Luther King's, Dr. Martin Luther King's niece, an award for what was that? Was Legacy Award. Yeah, the Legacy and Leadership Award. And uh, so she was there, but there were so many other wonderful things. But because of a conference that I attended in Wichita, Kansas earlier this year, 
you and I talked it over, and we said, you know who would be the best featured speaker for that breakfast that we sponsor was David Barton. Isn't that something? How many and you know how many people came up to us afterwards and they were so thrilled with having heard him speak and they said I have not heard him before. You just assume that everybody hears everything, you know. But David Barton, what a what a national leader in the history of America and so many things that people have never heard about. Yes, you know, in so many of the events I heard a common theme, and that is that we live in strategic times, and we need to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. And David Barton did such a wonderful job tying the the history of America and the history of Christianity, and then how that applies to where we are today. And, you know, like the men of Issachar, they understood the times, and they knew what Israel should do. And we need to understand the times in which we live and what we need to be doing as Americans. You know, this is not a time in America or even in the world when same old, same old, just keep doing the same old thing. No, no, no. We are entering an era where there is a collision, uh, not between politicians or political parties, but between what people believe is right and what they believe is wrong. And those who have a biblical worldview, why they are on one side and then the others, seemingly, they just, they just rage, don't they? Well, what I love about David Barton is he shares with us how those that have gone before in previous generations serving the Lord faithfully, their testimony inspires us to faithful service in these days. Yeah. All right. I think our radio audience, <laughs> I love this. I love this. I think our radio audience ought to have an opportunity to hear what he said. I agree. You introduce him. Oh, this is David Barton at our breakfast at the National Religious Broadcasters, the Bot Radio Network Breakfast. I get to share with you some this morning. In doing so, I want to mention a word that Jim Garlow mentioned. Jim's a good friend. And we've seen the election of uh, Donald Trump, what happened with that. It was a surprise to many people the way that it turned out. And it's particularly been a surprise that in the last six weeks, he has now, from the media on the left, earned the name of theocrat. Now, I've got to remind you, three months ago, a whole lot of folks were saying, man, the most unchristian guy we've ever had. And now the media is saying he's a theocrat. Every, every week since he was elected, I've been called to Washington, D.C. to meet with them on all sorts of issues. I just got back from D.C. yesterday. It looks like we're going to be able to finish a religious liberty measure we first introduced 16 and a half years ago. There's stuff going forward. Stuff going forward that none of us thought would ever see the light of day again. So there is a lot going on. But with that, I have to say that it really is a reprieve. It hasn't changed the direction of the nation. It has simply put the nation on pause. We've been in decline for a good bit. And this is a pause button. I want to show you part of the decline. I'm very blessed uh, to do a lot of stuff with George Barna. George, good friend. Uh, he, He heads the American Faith and Culture Institute. And he and I recently did a book together on the condition of America, where we are. And George comes out with new polls every two weeks. Really interesting stuff. He is focused on the condition of the church right now, where we are. I just want to show you some of of what he's showing us. Right now, two out of three Christians believe that there is no absolute truth. Now, Trump's not going to fix that. So that's why I say it's a pre. If we don't get the church in order, it doesn't matter what Trump does up top, because if two out of three Christians don't think there's moral absolutes, and by the way, it's four out of five when it comes to millennials that believe there's no absolute truth. Um, and that's the future we're looking at. 
One of the things that George points out is out of the 70 moral behaviors that they study, he says, when we compare Christians to non-Christians, we rarely find substantial differences. So in 70 moral categories, we cannot see a difference between Christians and non-Christians in their behavior over, overall, by and large, in the nation. I'll give you an example. Um, the president has moved to do some things to defund Planned Parenthood. As we were there yesterday, one of the things we're working on is how to get that, um, that money back to states that, that, that President Obama tied up and said states can't defund Planned Parenthood. I think we'll get that done. But the reason that Planned Parenthood exists is not because of Roe v. Wade. It is because of Christians. Currently, right now, 76% of Protestants do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. You have 65% of all abortions every year are performed on professing Christians, 200,000 abortions a year on born-again Christians. It is Christians that keep the Planned Parenthood business going. It is Christians that keep abortion going, or professing Christians. When it comes to homosexuality, we have 27% of active homosexuals who say they're born-again Christians. Now, we'll point out that's impossible. First Corinthians says that homosexuals do not enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't be a homosexual and be born again. It doesn't work. But see, this is where our thinking is right now in America as far as, as Christian faith and, and Christian behavior. So where we are at this point, George is now looking very extensively at churches. And so every day, he'll call around 500 churches a day. There's 344,000 senior pastors in America call 500 a day, ask them five or six questions. And we currently know that right now, what we have is 72% of churches and pastors in America say they don't believe the Bible. Now, that's three out of four churches who say, I don't think the Bible's right. I, I've got my own stuff, I believe. What that does mean is about 28% that do believe the Bible. That means about 100,000 churches, and that's enough to save a nation. E easy. So at that, 20, uh, that, that 28% that's there, what then happens is ask them about two dozen or so current issues. Do you think the Bible talks to things like immigration? Does it talk to marriage? Does it talk to life? Does it talk about the rights of conscience? Does, does the Bible talk about all these things we're facing right now? And between 91 and 97% of Bible-believing pastors say, yes, the Bible absolutely addresses the things that we face right now today. Next question, are you going to cover any of those things from the pulpit? Ninety percent of Bible-believing pastors say they will not talk about any of those things from the pulpit. So when you have 28 percent of pastors who do believe the Bible, but 90 percent of those pastors say, but I'm not going to talk about that stuff from the pulpit, what you're looking at is 2.8 percent of pastors in America actually will talk about current issues from a biblical perspective. Now, that's not going to shift much the culture, which, again, is why Trump is not going to be the solution for this if the church doesn't get its act together and start addressing the issues that are going on around us and giving people the right way to think, a biblical way of thinking on that. So George came out this week with a new poll, and it shows in that poll that we only have 4% of millennials that have a biblical worldview. So what that means, that's the future of the pulpit, that's the future of politics, this is the future of everything that goes on, and you're talking about only 4% of that group has a biblical worldview. So that's where the real work is in front of us, and that's where we have to do a lot of work, and if we're not careful, we'll be exactly like Europe, and our churches will be great museums. And that's what they will be. They will not be places where people go to worship. They will be, because right now, the fastest growing um, religious affiliation in America is N-O-N-E-S, nuns, those who have no affiliation at all. And with millennials, it's the same way. So that's why at this point we have a reprieve if we can do something with it. Uh, Jim said 30 months. I think that's probably about right. I would probably say more like 20 months. 
Uh, I think if that some significant shift does not happen before the next election, then I think things will turn further south. I'm an optimist, and so I'm not meaning to sound pessimistic, and I'm not, because I think things can be turned back in a very good direction. I want to take you back into history for a moment. Alexei de Tocqueville came to America in 1831, 1835. He came out with the book Democracy in America. It is from that book that he talked about how different America was, that everywhere he went, he saw faith everywhere. He said we had a religious society for everything. He said in France, I'd always seen religion and politics march in opposite directions. He said, but in America, they're intimately linked together. He said religion must be considered the foremost of their political institutions. And so in that, in that book, he talked about how different we were, and he's the one who came up with the phrase American exceptionalism. He's the one who said America is exceptional. I don't think any other nation will attain to what America has attained to. Now, America American exceptionalism is covered today in some textbooks, and when you say who's responsible for it, and you saw earlier, I'm appointed in a lot of states by state boards of education to history standards. When you say who's responsible for this unique nation that we have, invariably we will go to political leaders like George Washington, we will go to political leaders like Thomas Jefferson and John Hancock and John Adams, and all that's fine. Founding fathers had a huge role in America, but the difference is that if you had asked them 200 years ago who's responsible for America, you would have gotten a different answer. Now, we're very blessed. We own about 100,000 documents from before 1812, so I own thousands of their handwritten documents. 1818, a young historian, Hezekiah Niles, he's the millennial of their day. He did not live through the revolution. He enjoyed the benefits of it afterwards. He's a young guy. He's doing a history book. We actually have his history book. came out in 1822. He went to old man Adams and said, you know, 42 years ago, you were in the American Revolution. Now, we enjoy the benefits of that. Um, tell me, who, who were the key people in the American Revolution? Who, who were the key influencers? And John Adams said, hmm, you want to know who's responsible for what you're enjoying today? He said, well, right up top, you got the Reverend Dr. Sandra Cooper. Of course, there's the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. Ooh, don't forget the Reverend George Whitfield. And you got the Reverend Charles Johnson. He starts going through enlisted preachers. Now, that's not who we study in history today. Now, Adams was there, saw it, said, you want to know who's responsible? Start looking at all these preachers. See, we don't cover preachers, whether they're white or black. I mean, who in the world today covers anything about Richard Allen or who, who covers Absalom Jones or John Moran or Lemuel Haynes? I mean, we don't know these guys. And these are all huge guys in the American founding. Huge. Let me just give you one example. This guy right here is Harry Hoosier. Harry Hoosier was part of the Great Awakening. He preached in there with, with Bishop Asbury and Bishop Coe, and he drew larger crowds than the other guys did. Benjamin Rush signed with the Declaration, heard him preach. He said, he's the greatest orator I've ever heard. Well, Benjamin Rush is in Congress. He's heard Patrick Henry and all those other guys. He said, no, Harry Hoosier, the greatest orator I've ever heard. He said, but, but, but Hoosier didn't want to preach where everybody else preached. Hoosier wanted to go to the as far west as he could go. He wanted to get out with the really wild guys on the frontier, the, the rendezvous that they had, the, the frontier mountain men. And so he went as far west as he could go. And by the way, the, the name Hoosier should sound familiar to you, Indiana. Uh, Indiana was as far west as you could go at that point. So he went as far west as he could go. And as he's preaching and people get converted, their friends would look at him and say, what happened to him? He's one of those Hoosier guys. I wonder how many people in Indiana know they're named after a black evangelist probably nobody. But see, that's, that's the influence of preachers that we don't even see that. We don't cover black history worth a flip today in, in schools at all, and especially if it's wholesome stuff like, like Harry Hoosier. So John Adams, why would, he, why would he point to preachers and say these are the guys responsible? It's because if you look at the Declaration of Independence, every single right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. 
What that means is you should read the Declaration of Independence as a listing of sermon topics. See, this was done back in the Great Awakening time. These, the Declaration of Independence is sermon topics? Absolutely. And this was known for a number of generations. As a matter of fact, as you, it, it, John Adams talked about how our pulpits have thundered, and that was the word he used. And we own thousands of those sermons out of the Great Awakening, first and second Great Awakening out of the American founding. And people used to know what was there. As a matter of fact, this man, Bishop Charles Galloway, is a church historian. In 1892, he wrote a book on the American Revolution and the role of the preachers in it. And this is the way he described those preachers. He said, mighty men they were, men of iron nerve and strong hand and unblanched cheek and heart of flame. He said, God needed not reeds shaken by the wind, nor men clothed in soft raiment, but he needed heroes of hardihood and lofty courage. And such were the sons of the mighty who responded to the divine call. Now, I don't think there's a snowball's chance that the New York Times would describe preachers in that rhetoric today. But that's the way they were described back then. These were guys with guts and courage, and they were the leaders, and they're the ones who shaped the culture. And that was the way we knew it. And, and here's the type of sermons we had. This is, um, th these are sermons that came out of the Great Awakening. You know, the first Great Awakening went from 1730 to 1730. George Whitfield and Samuel Davies and, and Jonathan Edwards. The second Great Awakening went from 1801 to 1878. And you got Lorenzo Dow and Charles Finney and, and Charles Clay and all these guys that were in it. And the sermons that were preached include things like this. This is a sermon preached in front of John Hancock and Sam Adams as the governor, lieutenant governor of Massachusetts in front of the entire legislature of Massachusetts. For 170 years, we opened legislative sermons or legislative sessions with sermons. Here's a sermon on elections. For 230 years, we preached an election sermon every single year, not every other year, every year, because God was the one who ordained civil government. So we always, that's why election turnout used to be 100% in America. I can show you for a number of, uh, of centuries that 100% is where we were on election turnout. Here's a sermon on judges. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. That we're looking at Neil Gorsuch and what he can do. There's 104 judicial vacancies right now. What kind of judges do we want? Well, let's go to Ezra 7.24 where it says, Appoint judges who know the laws of God. That's a good place to start. The Bible has so much to say about judges. That's why we had sermons on them. We had sermons on earthquakes. Whatever was in the news, we wanted people to see the biblical view of that. This is preached by the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew, one of the guys that John Adams singled out. Here's a sermon on homosexuality, one of the sermons nobody likes to preach today because that might offend somebody. I've got to point out, Jesus did a great job of offending people all the time. It's not what he tried to do. But he always spoke the truth. And when you speak the truth, people are going to get offended. You're not trying to hurt them. You're trying to tell them the truth. And that's what we used to do. We used to handle anything that was in the news. Uh, here, here's a sermon, for example, on marriage. It was a law that was passed in New Hampshire. Uh, the Second Great Awakening. Here's a sermon on solar eclipse. A uh, sermon preached out of Amos. Whatever was in the news, we're talking about from a biblical perspective. A lot of verses in Amon, Amos on solar eclipses, lunar eclipses. Here's a sermon on the infirmities and comforts of old age. Not a popular sermon topic, but it's certainly something that was covered. Um, here's a sermon on the education of children. What should schools be teaching? What should we do with our kids? How should we educate them? Here's a sermon on the military, religion and patriotism. This was a deployment sermon, actually. 1755, preached by the Reverend Dr. Samuel Davies. Uh, this is a sermon on railroads. It was a look at biblical view of transportation because railroads, 1851, that's a pretty big deal. So what's God say about transportation? Uh, here's a sermon preached in front of the legislature of Virginia. Notice the title up top, The Sinfulness and Pernicious Nature of Gaming. 
gambling, lotteries, etc. This is what we were doing. This is a great awakening sermon, by the way, 1751. Uh, this is out of Virginia, which was the heart of the great awakening. Here's a sermon on medicine and health care. Uh, here's a sermon on the voice of, of warning to citizens and the election president of the United States. We dealt with issues. Whatever was in the news, we dealt with out of the pulpit. That's why we had backbone and courage. We shaped the way the nation thought. At this point in time, again, only 2.8% of Christian ministers are willing to address the things that are in the news, shape the way the nation. If you want a revival, this is what revival sermons look like. They're very practical. They're very specific. They address the issues of the day. Now, where we are right now, one of the things we did with, with George was we, we said, do Christians today even want to hear this kind of stuff? And so what George did was he said, let's see. And he called, um, he did a, 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 a big poll on this thing and found that there were 150 issues that Christians who attend church today, Bible-believing Christians, this is out of the 28% of the, the churches who believe the Bible, polled their people. And 150 issues they said they want to hear about out of the pulpit. Well, 150, that doesn't mean they think every issue is the same importance. So we had them rank it. Number five, if you think it's vitally important, you rank it number four. If you think it's very important, number three. If it's important, number two. If it's kind of important, number one. If it's not very important. And what we found was there were 14 issues where the 70% of churchgoers say, I think it's vital that I hear this issue out of the pulpit. Now, I'm going to show you 12 of the issues because that's what fits on the screen, but there's 14. You can go to wallbuilders.com. You can see the, the poll that George did. These are the top issues that Christians want to hear from the pulpit. 91% of Christians said, we think it's vital that we hear about beginning of life, right to life, conception, adoption. You mean Christians aren't pro-life? No, that's not what I mean. What you find is in polling, there's three political entities. You can say you're conservative or liberal or moderate, and there's only three states in the United States where the were that liberals outnumber conservatives. Now, you would never know that listening to the news. Only three states where people, more people say they're liberal than say they're conservative. In most states, it's a two-to-one conservatives outnumber the liberals. What we find is liberals and moderates are very open about speaking their opinion. They'll tell you exactly what they think. Conservatives won't tell you their opinion until they feel like they've mastered it. See, they want to make sure that they're not going to tell you something that's not true. And so they want to make... So what they're doing is they're asking for apologetics. You know, the, the abortion people keep saying, you guys only care about life inside the womb. You don't do anything once it's outside the womb. So talk to me about adoption and unwed mothers. And, and I'm Protestant, not Catholic. I don't understand the issue with contraception. So what's that all about? See, they're wanting apologetics. What they're asking for is equip me so I can go out in the culture and fight back on this stuff. I don't know how to answer it. It's not they're not pro-life. They want to be equipped by, by the pulpit. Here's a second, religious persecution and liberty. Number two, 86% want to know about our personal duty, what's the government's duty, what's the church response, and what are the global conditions. All of those are covered in the Bible. The church response is different from the government's response, different from the personal response. Number three was poverty. Tell me about the government's role in poverty. What's the church's role in poverty? Tell me about homelessness and hunger and dependence. See, these are the things they get hit with. Critics hit them with it, and they don't have to know how to answer this. Number four on the list, 83%, cultural restoration. Talk to me about appropriate morals. Can you legislate morality? Talk to me about values and norms and self-government. Number four, sexual identity. Same. See, this is the deal where the, we're losing to millennials. Well, if two people love each other, why can't they get married? I don't know how to answer that. Tell me how to answer that, preacher. See, we in the Christian community are not giving the apologetics needed to be able to push back against what the other side does. And our people don't want to talk about it until they feel like they've mastered it. So what they're begging for is equip me. I, I, I would talk about these values if I knew what I would say. 
Number six, Israel, its role in the world, Christian responsibility to Israel, U.S. foreign policy toward Israel and its enemies. Number seven, this is the kind of stuff I do, Christian heritage. They want to hear this kind of stuff out of the pulpit. Tell me why it's important that we know our heritage and what does that mean for us today. Number eight, the role of self-government. Give me a biblical view. Give me the church-state relationship that, that's supposed to exist. Personal responsibilities, limitations. Number nine, bioethics. Tell me about cloning, euthanasia, genetic engineering, cryogenics, organ donation. So, see, all of these, these are the top 12 issues that Bible-believing Christians are asking churches to address. Now, what we found in the polling is churches are not going to address this. Again, 90% of Bible-believing pastors said they will not talk about this stuff out of the pulpit. So what happens is, if you remember just before Jesus went back, he talked to his apostles, particularly Peter, and said, Peter, feed my sheep. And this is where we are in the church today. We should be feeding the sheep, and I raise sheep. I'm a cowboy from Texas. We've got the horses and the cows and everything that goes with Animals are extremely good at telling you what they need. If it's a trace mineral block, if it's a mineral block, if it's a saw block, if it, they, they let you know. They communicate very well. In what they, and our sheep are telling us, feed me. These are the top 14 issues I want you to feed me. And we're saying, no, we're not going to feed you that. And that's not the right response. So if church is not going to step up and do this, this is where the NRB really has to fill that void. We have to start equipping Christians to be able to take back the culture because we do have a reprieve right now. But if we don't change the way that Christians think and get them to talk about these issues, because, again, in, in polling, there's more of us than them. We just don't know what to say about it. This is where we've got to step up and make a real difference on this. It's time to really create a biblical worldview and get back to where we can shift the culture. We have a reprieve. We have a House and a Senate and a President willing to do pro-life stuff, religious liberty stuff. They're willing to do things that, that, that we've wanted for a long time. But if we can't come under them with the people and really build this up with the Christians that we have, it's going to be a long, hard fight. So let me encourage you, be bold, be courageous, address the culture. If it's in the news, take the Bible and say, here's how you deal with that. We need to give apologetics to our people. God bless you. Thanks for letting me share with you. My word, Rich, uh, he was talking so fast, and it was so good. I was watching the audience, and they were just—their mouth was almost hanging open. They wanted more. Wasn't that great? Isn't that fantastic? And before he left the stage, I asked him if he sees revival on the horizon. Here's what he I said. I hope and pray that we'll see another great awakening in yep. our land. Are you, do you sense—are you seeing some of the beginning signs of that? A great awakening, strangely enough, is a decades-long. A revival is not short. And I believe we have been in a great awakening for eight to 10 years. Statistically, I think I can prove that. Uh, the thing with great awakening is it often happens outside the church. The church refuses to respond. That's why George Woodfield had to preach in open pastures because churches wouldn't let him in. So I think that is happening. I think we're at the verge of really having a great awakening. And I wish churches would participate in it, but if they don't, we're going to have to do it outside them, but we're going to get the culture back. And I direction. want Christian Radio to be a part Absolutely. of that and Absolutely. to be used of the Lord for another great awakening. Thank you, David Barton. Was, Man, I'm glad you asked that question, Rich. That gave him a chance to really, really nail it. Didn't it? These are exciting times in which to live and to serve the Lord. You know, I, I want to just mention this in closing. It comes, And I have just thought so much about this. Mark, the 12th chapter the 30th and 31st verse, where they had asked the Lord, you know, what's the great commandment? What's the great commandment? And he answered and said, well, love love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then on the 31st verse, he said, the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Isn't that it? If people will just say, I care about other people, not just myself, not just my own kids, not my own future, not my own life, but I really want to help. I really want to work. I really want to share the love of Christ abroad and help people know how to live their lives according to the Bible. That's the problem, isn't it? And over and over, the theme was be bold in the preaching of the gospel, be bold in the witnessing of your faith and sharing the love of Jesus with everybody around you. Didn't we get a new appreciation for David Barton? Now, we first met him how many years ago? Would it have been 10 or 15? Oh, more than that. More than that ago. And he was a pretty young fellow, and he was collecting all of these important documents, and he was just digging into this, all of this information, you know. And he really is a—by the way, he's a wonderful Christian, isn't he? Oh, yes, he is. And he's a tremendous resource for us in these days. When I hear people so confused about what does the Bible really say about X, Y, and Z, and so on and so forth, and they don't know, and they don't know— we really need from the from the churches of America to let the congregation know this is what we really believe and this is why we believe it and hopefully it's found in God's word. The B I B L E, that's right. You know, we could almost end the program with that one. The B I B L E, yes, that's the book for me. Well we've got to get out of here, folks. This is Dick Bott with his chapter, The Complete Story, as a public service, and I'll see you later. 